The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. So I think now it's got to be about the responsible use of these genetic technologies. If it's been genetically modified to express more protein, I'm sure consumers can get on board with that. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Welcome back to the Vertical Farming Podcast. In case you missed last week's episode... We kicked off season one with David Farkar of IGS. The episode has been getting a lot of positive feedback, so if you haven't listened to it, make sure you do that. David was the first interview I had after the COVID crisis, and it was a very timely discussion about the opportunities David sees in the marketplace for his organization and for vertical farming as a whole. He's really keen on how the technologies can really impact the future of our society and talks in detail about the impact that weather handling and ventilation can have on vertical farming and how IGS is providing solutions to meet those needs. This week's guest is Louisa Burwood-Taylor. She's a journalist and editor of AgFunder News, a very popular site and where I spent a lot of time in researching the beginnings of this podcast. Louisa talks about how she became passionate about this specific topic and the origin story behind AgFunder News. We discuss her thoughts on the developments being made in vertical farming, the emergence of competition, and how other players in the indoor agriculture industry are responding. Louisa shares why the timing is right for our society to embrace vertical farming and the current best practices companies are putting into place. We dive into the concerns that I raise about genetically modified organisms, and Louisa discusses the three biggest challenges facing indoor agriculture at this time. Enjoy this conversation. So Louisa Burwood-Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we were doing a, we had a, a bit of discussion in the pre-chat about providing an overview for vertical farming. It's the obviously the subject of this podcast, and as a result of starting my research into this industry and getting connected with players in the space, obviously your name kept popping up a lot. <laughs> so I'm wondering, you know, obviously there's going to be people here that are very familiar w- with you, but people that are also learning about the vertical farming industry. So to provide a, a little bit of context, can you give a, a bit of background? into how you got started in ag tech and and specifically with AgFunder? Yeah, of course. So I'm a financial journalist by background. I've covered various different financial markets over the years from the exciting world of structured bonds to equity capital markets out in Asia, which was definitely a bit more exciting. 
And then I started focusing, I was at the Financial Times and I was looking at institutional investment and where, you know, all the large pension funds of the world and the insurance companies, how they invest and how they allocate those assets into different asset classes. And one of those areas that was really interesting was alternative assets. And that includes real estate and infrastructure and real assets, you would call it, things that are much more tangible and understandable to friends and family and people on the street. So I was excited to look more into that as an area. And when I moved back to the UK, this was about five, six years ago now, an opportunity came up to be the founding editor of a publication called Agri-Investor. And it was focused on investment in agriculture across all of it. So it's investing in farmland, it's investing in agribusinesses in the supply chain, and it was investing in ag tech. But at that point, ag tech was this very, very small piece of the overall investment pie. Um, what year, what year was, was this? This was the end of 2013. Okay. Uh, and 2013 was actually a, a breakout year for ag tech overall because there was this acquisition of a software company called the Climate Corporation by Monsanto, one of the large agribusinesses, for a mm-hmm. billion dollars. So that wow. was the first unicorn and really put ag tech on the map. But it took another couple of years for ag tech really to see the investment volumes get on the map. And that was in 2015. There was a bit of a breakout year. And in 2015, I joined AgFunder. How much had you known about the space as you were getting involved? Were you just learning as you were going? So in this, you were everything ag tech related? Was it sort of a trial by fire in terms of like what was happening in the industry? Yes, I think that's probably <laughs> fair to say. And I think with journalists, when they take on a new beat, you're very much learning on the job. The great thing about being a journalist is you are allowed to ask a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> that is the job. So um, when I first got into it and when I was interviewing for that first job in Agri-Investor, I was immediately just so excited about this potential. You know, all those statistics that people have now probably heard till they're blue in the face about feeding a growing population and yeah. needing to improve food production. You know, it was really exciting. Uh, five, six years ago, it was something that, you know, it's such a, a huge industry. It's such an important industry for everyone on the planet. But yet it's somehow it's been siloed. Agriculture is something that people mm. imagine takes place often miles away from them if they live in a city. You know, I grew up in London. Yeah. A lot of my friends don't sort of see the connection necessary between agriculture and food. So it was really exciting to start seeing that people were wanting to invest in this space and do so to improve the quality of food and to improve the environmental impact of our food. Why is that specifically or that that cause something that's important or something that resonated with you? I think, I hope it resonates with a lot of people of my age and, and older as well. I think it's hard to ignore the impacts of climate change and and the impacts that humans have on this planet. I'm a big wildlife lover and um, I'm also a big food lover. And it seems to me that not only, you know, and having worked in the financial world and covered financial, you know, financial investments, sustainability was increasingly becoming ESG, this term environmental, social and governments was increasingly something I was hearing investors talking about it actually has taken quite a few years for it to be something that they're taking seriously. But I think something we could talk about maybe a bit later is a lot of large public companies are being very serious about their sustainability initiatives as of, you know, last year, pretty much. But I was hearing a lot more talk about that as a concept. And I found that very interesting and exciting. But it also seemed to just make sense for companies. If they want to be sustainable into the future, they need to think about where they're sourcing their products from. 
who their clients are, what they care about. So it seemed to be a great time. And I think for me, I was very lucky that that opportunity came up at that moment because I'll never look back. Yeah. So when you got started with AgFunder, was there a vision for what it was going to be? And is it did it look a lot like it looks now in terms of all the different parts of it? And I know there's a focus on investing in the space as well. So what did it look like when you first joined? And is what it is now what the vision was from the founders? Yeah, so the vision has always been to bring more investment into the agriculture industry and also bring more technology to the space. So mm-hmm. our two co-founders, Rob Leclerc and Michael Dean, were working on an agriculture project in West Africa, and they were trying to raise funding for that, finding that hard, but at the same time, we're realizing, you know, how technology could have improved that the project that they were working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they wanted to do something about that, and they thought that, you know, a key way of doing that would be to help bring more investment into the space. But before they could do that, it was about educating the industry telling people, as I said, you know, this idea of investing in agriculture, agriculture was something so removed from some of these mainstream markets that we really needed to start with education. And so they launched AgFunder News, which I came on board to manage from 2015 as like a tech crunch for agriculture. Yeah. And we hope that's still kind of what we are. (laughs) (laughs) And it really took a life of its own. So as I mentioned, there was an acquisition by Monsanto in 2013. And that's when more and more VCs started to take note of this space as somewhere that they could make some money. But equally for entrepreneurs looking for the next industry for them to work in and take some of the technologies being developed elsewhere into the sector, it really started to grab attention. And then a couple of years ago, we built this network. It was probably around 50 50 to 60,000 members and subscribers globally Mm -hmm. at that time. And, you know, we had all this expertise. We had these experts in our network. We had all these investors we're speaking to all the time. We thought it was time for us to start investing ourselves. So we started launching our own funds. We Our funds are open to individuals all the way through to large institutions. Our investors mm-hmm. range from high net worth individuals to funds of funds, impact funds, corporates, some of the food and agriculture corporates too. And we've raised three funds so far. And we have a, a fund out at the moment, which is focused on the alternative protein space. So we're an investor, but we also have media and research as well. So now moving uh, into specifically like indoor ag tech, as much as I would love to <laughs> go into the alternative meats and the plant-based meats as well, because <laughs> I find that uh, really fascinating with what's happening there. When did you start to see a specific focus or people paying more attention to what was happening, not just uh, obviously with all things ag tech related, but specifically with what was happening with vertical farming and a lot of the developments happening in, in terms of like improvements in LED lights, hydroponics, aeroponics? Has that always been on your radar or when did you that start to you know catch your attention more? Yeah, that's been on the radar from the beginning. And a nice way that I try to think about how it's changed over the years is thinking about our readership. So when I joined AgFondo in 2015, mm-hmm. if I wrote any article about indoor agriculture, I knew it was going to be the best read that week. People were so excited. People thought it was something cool, something different, a little bit sci-fi, this concept that you could be growing in you know, your backyard or inside your you know, basement. So it was always something that was very popular from the beginning. I will say that we saw a little bit of a dip in popularity of those articles probably around 2018, I think, because there was this realization that this was a lot harder 
than everyone thought it was going to be. And it was interesting that the readership you know, picked up on those challenges and seemed to take some of the excitement and the hype with a grain of salt. I will say now that that's changed again. And last year, some of our best read articles were those about indoor agriculture, probably also because some of our guest contributors were really delving into the economics of the industry and showing people how it can work and how some of the different models compare to each other, whether that's full vertical farming or greenhouses and so on. And the importance of using technology in that. I think that the use of software programs, robotics, all of that technology, which has in itself improved over the last couple of years, it's now come to a point where I think it's being it's becoming effective indoors. And that's making it a much more viable business model. And it's creating this entirely new ecosystem of technologies specifically targeted at the industry. I'm, I'm thinking about soft robotics, for example, creating the ability to pick fruit, fruit that's ripening. You're just that technology wasn't a need before for something like that. But now with the idea of trying to automate as much of this as possible, obviously LED lights that are only using certain spectrums of light to increase like the viability. I think Let Us Grow just had a, a post or just received additional funding for their aeroponics systems. So I think the fact that these companies are niching down within the industry, do you see this as just a, another ecosystem that's developing as a result of people trying to address and, and obviously bring down the cost of producing within a vertical farm? Yeah, I think the first wave of companies will be some of those larger names that you'll know. Yeah. Aerofarms, Plenty, Bowery was a little bit uh, newer. Mm -hmm. But you had some of the um, more, more established players. They were doing everything themselves and they were learning as they went. And that's given them, you know, first mover advantage. Yeah. But it's also cost them a lot of money. So I think what's interesting now is you're seeing this next wave, and it includes one of our portfolio companies, actually, which is called Intelligent Growth Solutions. They're now becoming a provider mm -hmm. to the industry. So it could be that I decide I want to become a farmer tomorrow and I have some space. I can then go and ask them to provide me with the tools that I need. In the instance of IGS, they will provide me with the actual full complete kit that I need, which includes the growing towers, yeah. which includes the software, even the electronics um, to get me going. And I think that's a much more realistic model in many ways, because the job of being the technical person that's running all the software, knowing how to build a farm, then knowing how to grow the produce and monitor it, and then know how to sell it. Remember, there's that whole other portion. And of course, this is what farmers do every day, which makes their job very hard. But for a new industry, trying to find people that can mix all of those skills together and find the labor is very hard. So I think it makes sense for people to focus on certain portions of that process. It seems like there would be an entirely new skill set required for the workforce that's going to be coming into this industry because it's no longer the, uh, you know, you have the visions of the farms in, in California, for example, and the migrant workers coming in to pick the strawberries, but that's not really what the future is going to be because even if you just look at the plenty promo videos, it's folks in like super, you know, covered with like gloves and like infrared glasses <laughs> and that you know and and so it's very futuristic looking but i, I would imagine it's an entirely new skill set that I, I i would imagine some folks are preparing for in terms of getting people trained for the, the jobs that are going to be required 
Yes, I, it's interesting you say that, and I think to some extent that's true. But I was speaking to Irving Fain, the mm-hmm. CEO of Bowery, yeah. and he and I talked exactly about this problem. You know, what is this issue around finding the right people to hire? And he said, well, increasingly, it's looking more like manufacturing plant inside an indoor farm, mm. or it could be like a food factory. And so he says that they're able to find people that might have had a previous career in another manufacturing industry, which is nothing, maybe nothing to do with food, that should be able to start to operate some of this machinery. I think in the early days, you did need a level of that agronomic knowledge. But perhaps now with these software tools that can do a lot of the monitoring and measurement, we might be able to move away from that. And then it's just people who understand how to use technology. What are your thoughts about some of the bigger players coming into this space? And I don't know if this is a concern yet or whether it's just so big that there's plenty of room for everyone. But I I read recently, obviously, that Plenty is going to be going into Compton, for example, and they're building a whole complex there to support that neighborhood. But do you see just really big players like the Aero Farms, like the Plenty's, um, like the Bowery's coming in and just sort of dominating the space because they have the funds you know they've recently received a lot of funding as well and they're just going to start having pockets or is there an opportunity for a a mixed environment where folks like freight farms for example are are helping people with the container farms and is there sort of a hybrid approach depending on the market that they're entering yeah i think it would be that hybrid approach i think the plenties and aerofarms of the world would have liked to have been you know your first thought as we mentioned it's been a lot more challenging to scale than um, people realized. I certainly think there'll be leaders and there'll be folks that will have the largest massive plant factories. But I think there's definitely absolutely potential for people to build new farms in smaller locations in more kind of niche areas or niche products. You'll be find it really interesting when you speak to Henry Gordon Smith, he'll talk about software that he's building at the moment, which is to help folks to, if they have an idea that they want to build a farm somewhere, he can help maybe a city to understand which locations within that city might make sense. And then then there's plenty of potential for it to be uh, all sorts of different people building these farms and of different scales. I thought it was interesting. I, I think it was, I don't know if you, maybe it was something that you mentioned or when I was doing a bit of research, I heard a quote from David Rosenberg of Aerofarms. He said, 90% of indoor agriculture players out there will go out of business. <laughs> so I'm wondering if what your thoughts are about that. If you, you know, a lot of, obviously like when there is a, a bit of a, a gold rush mindset, you know, a lot of players want to get in and they may not be prepared to be in it or have the investment to be in it for the long haul. I think that David is probably right or was probably right. I think increasingly the sector is getting de-risked and people are becoming more comfortable with it. I think local governments and local cities are going to want to put money into this space. Uh, I don't know where we stand on things like grants and that sort of thing, but I think increasingly failures hopefully will decrease. But again, of course, in the early days, and especially if people can't afford to have the best equipment and the best technology, there, um, you know, it's it's very hard. Do you see the potential for more unicorns coming up in this space? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope so. We definitely across ag tech, we need to have some more exits for investors to bring more in. It's very, very hard to know. Valuations actually can be all over the place. A lot of times a valuation of a company is dependent on their access to capital and not necessarily the stage at which their company is in terms of bringing in revenues and being a sustainable business. So there could be some that have unicorn valuation at some point soon. 
but whether or not that actually translates into billion dollars worth of value, uh, I'm not sure. And do you see it? I spoke with uh, Stephen Pankhurst, who did a really, really interesting series on YouTube a couple of years ago about vertical farming, which is where I was able to get a lot of research. And he talked about it in phases, how it's obviously the leafy greens would be the first phase, and then it's more of the, the fruits like the strawberries. But he said, you know, at some point, there's an opportunity for crops that are really water intensive. You know, if you think about almonds or, or for as an example, you know, there's people having those discussions. And I'm wondering if you've heard anything or conversations with people interested in pursuing that specific niche because obviously everyone has, has started focusing on the leafy greens for the indoor space if you've heard anything about the, these other types of crops i'm i haven't specifically i mean almonds uh that sounds like a, a great idea i i know that there are of course challenges in terms of that almonds being grown yeah, on yeah. trees and, <laughs> uh, and some crops being very large but what i will say is that there's um there was an interesting development last year for what was called the Precision Indoor Plants Consortium. And this is a, a grouping of companies. I believe it includes Aero Farms, but also BASF, which is the large agrochemicals company, Benson Hill, which is the crop genomics platform. And then there's an LED lighting group, there's Intrexon and so on. And what's interesting there is that they're looking at varieties of crops that might make sense to grow indoors. And I think potentially you would create different varieties of outdoor crops that are suitable for being grown indoors. Yeah. And maybe that's how it would work with some of these other crops. But that's that's great to hear. I think <laughs> everyone does get a little bit fatigued around leafy greens and you always hear people <laughs> saying the world can't be fed on leafy greens. And, yeah. You know, so it's refreshing to hear those new ideas. We'd love to see them. I think one of the things you mentioned in your interview on uh, Rabobank was this idea of millennials wanting to do good. And I think this concept of uh, the timing is right for people to open themselves up for, you know, new alternatives for how we are consuming our food and to be concerned about things like distance that food travels to get to our plate. But even things like uh, I know that Plenty is working on a compostable container because obviously one of the not so secret secrets of the leafy green world is obviously all this plastic that's being generated in all these supermarkets so you know it's in, it's refreshing to see that plenty is thinking about those things as well that's brilliant yeah and i think all of those ancillary services to this industry will be really interesting we'd love to see more startups who are in that packaging space innovative packaging it's surprisingly a small segment overall mm -hmm. of food tech and ag tech considering it's something that we're all thinking about all the time. Yeah. We're all very concerned about our use of plastic. So that's fantastic. And I think leaders like Plenty, you know, it's great if they're going to, you know, take a leading role there and, you know, potentially front some of the early costs of research in that space too. I wonder if there's opportunities to maybe open source, it's, uh, such as, you know, some we've seen some examples of that in the technology world, obviously with things like Linux maybe, but I'm wondering if something like uh Putting in best practices for how to do some of this compostable packaging is something that, the, to your point, the whole industry could benefit from. And you mentioned a couple of organizations that are consortiums or, or that are, are looking to share resources or research. Are there other organizations where they're, they're looking to sort of put best practices forward? There was the Vertical Farming Association yep. um, that was set up a few years ago. I'm not quite sure the status of them there right now but that you know there's several and what i will say about is about ag tech overall is i i notice an increasing propensity to collaborate amongst startups which is great i think initially every app every sensor etc was going to save the world on their own yeah 
And as soon as they people dug in, they realized this is an incredibly complex industry and no one's going to be able to do it alone. So there's a lot of collaboration between tools, whether they're integrating through APIs, whether they're actually researching the potential for how to monitor a certain uh, nutrient in the soil together. You know, there's various different ways that companies are working together. And I think we'll continue to see that. Probably soon after you joined AgFunder, you put together an article that said the three big challenges for indoor agriculture, and I'm just looking through them now. A lot of the technology involved is still very early stage, availability of funding, and uh, finding experienced talent. Do you still think those have been addressed by now, or is there still some work to be done there? I think the technology piece is being increasingly addressed and rapidly too, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. I think availability of capital is just always a challenge. However much investment is increasing, and we had 10 billion of investment across Foodtech and AgTech last year, mm-hmm. that sounds like a lot, but it's still you know, a very small portion of overall venture capital investment, for instance. It's yeah. still less in healthcare technology, and healthcare and agriculture both represent the same amount of global GDP. So we've still got some catching up to do, but it is always improving. And if we can see more successful indoor farms, that's going to make that capital more readily available. What are you seeing happening in your own backyard? Are you seeing any innovations or companies or are you seeing examples of it in London, for example? I'm actually not in London. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from London. Uh, Yes, I'm British. I'm based in New York. Home is is in New York? Yes. Okay. So, So the question would be, are you seeing any or have you heard of any innovations happening back home in London or even where you live now? So back in London, there is a group called Growing Underground. Oh, the Liver- in Liverpool. Was it the Liverpool? No, it's actually, oh. I think it's actually in London and it's okay. in old train, you know, underground, the underground. It's in some of the old lines and the old train stations there. And my colleague, Richard, he went to go and visit that. That's very cool. There's yeah, there's quite a bit of indoor agriculture back in the UK actually. You mentioned Lettuce Grow yeah uh, earlier that they're based in the UK too, and then here in New York is definitely a hub for indoor farming. Again, Henry Gordon Smith has probably been responsible for growing quite a lot of that. He has a great event that they do every year, Ag Tech Week here. Yeah, and that really ranges from whether they're the equipment providers, the technology providers, or actual indoor farms as well. And Farm One as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think since he covers different cities on his podcast, the one that I caught up with was a, a conversation with the CEO of, of Farm One as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So as you think about what's happening and what you've seen so far from the time you've been at AgFunder, what has you excited about the space specifically related to indoor ag tech? Not to repeat myself, but I am mm-hmm. very excited about that potential for looking at the genetics of Mm. the crops that could be grown indoors and really optimizing on that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you could get some great efficiencies in that. And it's exciting because it brings other players in from the industry to bring their technological prowess into it. I'm thinking of Benson Hill particularly. I'm a big fan of what they do. What are they focused on? Benson Hill. So they have a computational platform that helps to look into genetics of crops and find Mm. different varieties. They also do gene editing as well Mm. to improve certain characteristics of crops and, you know, using that natural biodiversity. So these aren't GMO. These are crops that they are editing in a way that would have happened through natural breeding, Mm. but just over much quicker timescale. 
I'm very excited about the potential for companies like IGS and this way of enabling, maybe not anyone, but enabling people to set up farms in any location by using their technology. They're doing some really smart things around electronics and around energy and bringing those costs down around energy. I think that's something that people you know, didn't think a huge amount in the beginning, that the cost of all that lighting, the cost of all that mm-hmm. HVAC, the cost of all that climate control and the energy involved in that, the, the carbon footprint. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of focus on the saving of water, which is fantastic. But I think that fossil fuel consumption essentially still has a lot of work to do. So very excited about the potential for that. And actually now I'm thinking about it, going back to that idea around the crop varieties, growing mm-hmm. more nutritionally dense food something mm. i'm thinking a lot about at the moment i think we've had this first wave or maybe second wave of ag tech and a lot of it's been focused on growing more with less using less water using less pesticides and so on but now i think we've proved that we do have enough food to feed the world it's not necessarily reaching the right places and the right people but even people that are getting enough food are suffering from chronic disease mm. uh, and things like obesity and diabetes particularly here in the u.s looking at how we can use food and the way that we grow it or what we grow and how that can be nutritionally improved to be better for people and actually potentially cure or at least alleviate some of those ailments I mentioned. I think that's really exciting and I think indoor agriculture can absolutely play um, a big role there. Are you seeing or hearing of anyone expressing any concerns about GMO foods? Because once you start mentioning, you know, genetic modification, you know, people mm-hmm. get, you know, people may just not be educated enough on the, the concept or the definition of it. But I'm wondering what you've heard. Yeah, it's a really tricky one, GMO. I know that a few years ago, before I got into this industry, I probably was against it and wouldn't want to eat it. I probably still wouldn't love to give something that's clearly labelled GMO to my son. But the main reason for the backlash against GMO has been how it's been used. And the most one of the most common ways it's been used is to have resistance to pesticides Mm -hmm. so that you can apply even more to kill even more weeds for sure. But then of course there's those residues that are left in the crops. So I think now it's got to be about the responsible use of these genetic technologies. There needs to be transparency. We need to tell consumers exactly how this crop has been genetically modified if it's been genetically modified to express more protein or to express more vitamins i'm sure consumers can get on board with that yeah we just there needs to be a a lot of retrust that's not a word (laughs) 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 we need to you know bring more you know bring more trust into this space i hope that people are pragmatic i think millennials you know are very keen to be doing the right thing environmentally and socially so hopefully if things can be communicated in the right way and have an open dialogue, I would hope and foresee the use of genetic tools, whether it's modification, which involves inserting foreign genes, or whether it's editing where you're working within the mm. same genetic profile of a, of a plant. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of educating the consumer as to the source and the nature of the changes and also the benefits as to you know why it's done and, and for increasing the yields and things like that. I think if people can get on board and there's some transparency with what's happening, I think people will feel more comfortable about uh, yeah. the mention of the word. Right, exactly. And I think the role that indoor agriculture can play is because you can be growing every day of the year. You don't have to wait for crop seasons to do trials and to test and to grow these crops they could really play a role in actually advancing this even faster than ever before 
Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of inroads being made in in sort in terms of the data science and the business intelligence aspects of it. You know, because there's a lot of computational power that's going to be needed to sort of go through these iterations. To your point, because the crop cycles are, are shorter, I think there's more. You're seeing what's what's working and what's not faster. Exactly, and being able to monitor the climate to that very very specific degree and be able yeah. to feed back that data to the breeders will be very exciting. Well, Louise, I want to be conscious of the time. I want to thank you for uh, coming on and educating our audience a little bit and also getting us up to speed with what's happening in, specifically in the indoor ag tech and vertical farming space. So I appreciate you for taking the time to come on. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Where's the best place for folks to get more information, to learn more about AgFunder News and to connect with you as well? Yes, well, please check out agfundernews.com for our media arm and then agfunder.com is our investment space. Okay. Thanks again. Thanks again to Louisa for sharing her story on the show. Tune in next week for my conversation with Stephen Pankhurst. Stephen is one of the first people that I researched. He created a really elaborate three-part series on YouTube about the entire vertical farming industry, and it was very helpful for me as I was putting together the outline for what would be this podcast. So I'm really excited to share his story and have him tell you about his passion for vertical farming on episode three. Once again, thanks to our title sponsor, Intelligent Growth Solutions. To learn more about their indoor farming and intelligent growth products, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.